It's Monday, March 23rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. And, you know, this podcast is first and foremost about business news. But every once in a while, we step back from the business news of the day, sometimes because we just want to, sometimes because, frankly, there's not a whole lot going on. I'm not sure which today is. It's a little bit of both, I think. But joining me in studio today is Assistant General Counsel here at The Motley Fool, Chris Harris. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I wanted, and I mentioned this last week, I wanted to have you on because there's legal stuff going on out there in the investing world that seems to be brewing on several fronts. And I wanted, well, frankly, I just wanted to talk to a lawyer and, and get your take on this. Um, and I, I want to talk about Drones, flying drones, because that's that story is progressing on the legal front. Uh, I want to talk about a lawsuit that some may say is frivolous, others may argue the opposite of that. But let's start with class action lawsuits. And the most recent example of this is lumber liquidators. And we've talked about the business aspects of lumber liquidators and the story on 60 Minutes and how that stock has just gotten crushed as a result of that. But if you go to any sort of ticker-based news feed, you type in LL, the ticker symbol for lumber liquidators, and a whole bunch of the stories you're going to see are not necessarily about the business of lumber liquidators. They're going to be press releases from law firms, announcing class action lawsuits, etc. Let's, so, let's talk about this for a second, because I think that the, the class action lawsuits, that's something that investors see from time to time. And if it's a stock that you own, and I'm sure in the case of some of our listeners, they own shares of lumber liquidators. So, what am I supposed to think? And I don't own shares, but what should go through an investor's mind if they go to a news feed, it's a stock they own, and they see a bunch of law firms are organizing a class action lawsuit? Should I join that? Should I just avoid it and think, wow, that's frivolous, I don't really care? So, And and I'm sure your answer is going to be some version of, well, it depends. It it depends. Generally speaking, class actions, the way that they're constructed, are supposed to contain basically everybody who is affected by the same problem, and then they identify, like, all right, we can define the group that are affected by this problem. This problem resulted because of some sort of legal violation, and then we have a couple of named representatives. And what we'll do is we'll try the case for these named representatives, and then everybody else who is in the same boat, basically, will get a portion of the payout. Um, And that's one of the things that law firms do early on in this process, is they all try and become sort of the law firm of note. Because the way the fees break down, so there are 10 million people affected by this issue, 17 law firms all get together, and they end up submitting one case there's the, the top law firm on that case, so there's like two or three who sort of get the docket, and they are the ones who will actually send the lawyers, and they'll do the trying, and then they'll take a larger share of sort of the legal fee payout, and everybody gets their piece, but that's what the reason why multiple law firms were all filing class action suits is sort of the first step in the class action process is they're going to say, okay, all of these suits out there, they're all for the same thing. We should consolidate them into one class, and then we'll move them into the jurisdiction that is probably the best for us. So that's why you'll see it in the beginning, a whole bunch of law firms all filing pretty much identical claims. It's because early on in the process, a judge is going to consolidate them all into one giant class. So if you're a shareholder of 
in this case, lumber liquidators, and you're looking at this, come across your newsfeed, and you think, well, I bought the stock when it was around $80 a share. Now it's around $30. I'm disaffected by this. I feel disenfranchised. I want to join this. What the nice thing with class actions is that, generally speaking, if you're a member of the class, the law firms have a responsibility to reach out and try and find you. Um, so you don't, you don't have to do anything. Um, the downside with being a member of the class is that if you don't opt out of the lawsuit, you can't bring any future claims. So in theory, the way that the class action is supposed to work is that uh, a corporation faces some sort of like almost infinite liability. And by resolving with everybody at once, they can come to a resolution that doesn't destroy the business and makes all of the people affected somewhat more whole. And that's so if you don't do anything, you'll probably be considered a member of the class and entitled to whatever your element of um, the payout is if it goes through. If you want to, if you feel like you have a, a claim that is significant or different or you want to fight it yourself, you can opt out of the class and go it alone. But that's harder to do, and it's a lot of effort, especially for an individual shareholder who owned a stock that went down in price. Is there a typical way that these type of things end? It seems like for at least some percentage of them, and I'm not sure what the percentage is, these just get settled out of court. I think I don't know the numbers, but my understanding is that most class actions are settled out of court. Um, the biggest thing really is going to be the degree to which the claim is strong. So there are class actions that people will fight because they're based on a very tenuous claim. Um, I, the lumber liquidators, as I understand it, basically there was a finding by some federal body that actually you know it was a 60 minutes piece right. that now the federal body cares about about their uh, linoleum had too much formaldehyde. formaldehyde in it. If there's a court that upholds that claim, then I think all of these class action lawsuits are going to become more important to pay attention to until somebody even begins to uphold a claim that they've done something wrong. All of the, the additional securities claims don't really hold. So the, the class action says that because they lied about the formaldehyde, I lost money as an investor. Until we've got a pretty strong case they lied about the formaldehyde, the fact that you own a stock that went down doesn't really give you a class action lawsuit right away. Yeah, I was saying to you this morning, Part of me sees these news stories, sees these announcements from law firms, and just immediately goes to that part of my brain that thinks, oh, that's, that's what they do. That's, it, it goes to the more negative connotations of the legal profession, just like, well, you know, they're not, they're not doing the, they're just doing this because they're chasing a buck. It, I mean, lawyers comes in, come in all shapes and sizes. And uh, I think class actions, like with any sort of litigation attorney, you're going to find some people who are doing it for the money, some people who are doing it because they really enjoy the challenge. And they're going to be people who do it because they really think it's a, a powerful tool for people who don't get a lot of powerful tools. Um, I think I, I said to you earlier that class actions to me, it, a lot comes down to the way they define the class, like the, the class of... What is this group? Yeah. If, if the, the class of people who are damaged, it's like, well... We are filing a lawsuit on behalf of all of the orphans who lost their sight in the chemical fire. You're probably coming from a better place than we are firing this suit on behalf of all of the federal, all of the uh, corporate bondholders who were affected by the interest rate increase. It just it, damage can happen to a lot of people in a lot of ways, but for folks who really don't have the means to bring a suit who are all affected by the same thing, a class action lawsuit is kind of the only tool they've got. Let's move on to the continued rise of the machines. 
last week, late last week, the FAA said that Amazon can begin testing flying drones in open spaces. There are some caveats put on this. Uh, only during the daytime, a maximum of 400 feet in the air, and the flying drone must be within the pilot's sight at all times. And Amazon also has to provide data back to the FAA on the number of flights conducted, et cetera, et cetera. I got to be honest, I was surprised by the speed of this. I, I think of the federal government moving not particularly fast. So the fact that Amazon got this green light and granted it's in some ways a baby step, this isn't just, well, everyone, you know, all business entities get flying drones forever. But I was a little surprised that this came out this quickly. I think the one of the things that made it happen a little bit quicker is that the FAA has long said that. Um, Essentially, hobbyist use of drones is like hobbyist use of model airplanes. Folks have been doing it for decades, and there are rules. You stay within the sight of the operator, stay under a certain airspace, all that stuff. They just sort of applied those with a couple of modifications to Amazon as sort of their entry into commercial drone usage. But it's, it's the fact that the, the residential uses are out there. And honestly, I think because residential, or not residential, um, uh, recreational use is so hard to determine for most drone users. So a lot of folks who are using drones for what is really commercial use without a license are wedding photographers, they're nature photographers, they're doing very sort of uh, simple surveys of the farmland they own. That's hard. If, If you find somebody flying a drone over their farm, can you prove that they were doing it as part of a business or is because they like to fly their model airplane? That problem, I think, means the FAA is going to need to move a little bit quicker because there, there are people who are going to be violating the law in a way that the FAA can't determine and can't enforce. And if you're if you're an enforcement body and you come across a problem like that, your options are to try really hard to stop commerce or try and get ahead of it as best you can. And I think that's what we're seeing with the FAA is they're they're making a real effort to try and stay relevant in the drone space before they're overrun. Who's going to get the final say on this in the federal government? Because there was a story about, I believe it was the University of Virginia, maybe the medical school attached to it. They had a flying drone. They were trying to get some photography, aerial photography for a promotional video. Um, There was a ruling. And basically, you had two government agencies sort of going at each other. The National Transportation Safety Board uh, judge ruled that the FAA lacks authority over unmanned commercial drones. If if the FAA doesn't have authority over it, does that mean the NTSB does? And who's going to decide between the two of them? That's where I'm really not sure. I mean, if if somebody has a decision from one that contradicts a decision from the other, they can take that to a, a, a full court and try and get it determined. That's sort of how you get things out of that executive process. Please tell me this isn't going to go to the United States Congress. I... I hope not. Um, that would be a good place. If, if if there were congressmen who just said drones should be legal, we're going to authorize the FAA to enforce them with the understanding that they're going to do everything they can to make it as easy as possible to get a drone out there. That would be great. I don't know if there's the kind of, I guess, lobbying muscle involved in the drone fight right now. I mean, most of what you have are a lot of very large tech companies and a lot of hobbyists. It's a nice mix, but I don't think that Google's lawyers are sitting down there trying to make sure that Congress, instead of focusing on the other big Google things about removing internet, removing the state sales taxes, um, making it so that Google is not prosecuted under all sorts of antitrust things, 
drones are probably like fifth or sixth on their list. If you're the drone lawyer at Google, you're you're just off in a small office working by yourself. I mean, you probably have a team of some pretty cool hobbyists, but I don't think you're you're not the first thing on their legal docket, in my opinion. Let's go back to the speed issue again, because uh, again, I was a little surprised that this happened as quickly as it did, and it got me thinking about. Well, let's move on to driverless cars. And we talk from time to time about innovation on Wall Street among the big banks and that sort of thing. And and it's been said many a time that the big banks can innovate more quickly than the SEC can catch up to them. And it kind of seems like that is not exclusive to Wall Street banks. It also seems like innovation in the transportation industry, whether it's flying drones or driverless cars, is moving a heck of a lot faster than the federal government can. And I'm just wondering, what should investors expect in terms of, whether it's state government or federal government, in terms of approvals of this sort of thing? Because it's, you know, driverless cars exist, but that doesn't mean that insurance companies are ready to write policies. It doesn't mean that state and local governments are ready to pass laws dealing with driverless cars on the road. I think the the real thing to look for would be somebody using driverless cars in a private context. So, you've got a giant Walmart factory, you've got a giant Amazon factory, you've got people who are shipping things on private roads around their complex, that's going to be the place where driverless cars, I think, pop up first, just because the the patchwork of laws that govern the American road system are insane. Um, they, they stretch from federal laws about what you can and can't do on the roads that cross in between states, to state laws governing each of the roads, to the federal government threatening to withhold state highway funding unless state laws conform to certain elements. It's, it's hard for any one actor to move quickly there. And so, barring a, a real demand for the federal government to make some sort of policy around driverless cars, I think you're going to have to look to places where you don't need the federal government to sign off and you don't need state governments to be involved. Um, the, other, the other one we might see, just because they're already governed under their own sort of subsection of the highway laws, would be long-term trucking. Um, there, are, there are different laws for trucks than there are for cars. And I could see uh, like a, a human assisted by a computer driving a truck, being able to be slipped in somewhere in that patchwork better than in any other form of driving. Long-haul trucking, so it's... Uh, Yeah, you've got to ship something from Chicago to Los Angeles. If you're a trucker, you have to take a break every 12 or 16 hours or switch with your wife and she'll drive for the next 16 hours. Replacing that with a computer, I mean, once you get on a highway, you basically drive until you run out of gas. You don't need to make any turns. You don't need to make any off-ramps. The highways are all heavily mapped. That would be the place I think it would start. And there's also a pretty strong business behind that. The trucking industry, on the one hand, I'm sure that the truckers themselves would be rather against it. But the folks who own the companies, being able to replace your biggest expense and run all night, that's, that's kind of alluring. That's worth lobbying for, at least. Early Bird Foods is a company based in Brooklyn. They have a line of granola products. They are being sued in federal court by Whole Oats Enterprises, which is a company owned by the singing duo Hall & Oats. And they are suing 
because the newest product, newest, and, and again, we're talking about granola here. The newest product from Early Bird Foods is a, a type of granola called Holland Oats, H-A-U-L-I-N apostrophe Oats, and the singing duo of Daryl Hall and John Oats is suing them. Wait, really? For trademark? Like I, When I hear about trademark infringement, I think in terms of, and you're the lawyer, and that's why you're here, but I think in terms of potential confusion amongst the customers. Is anyone going to be legitimately confusing music from this singing duo to the granola that they're buying from the hipster place in Brooklyn? Yeah, I, I would say no, except I know that Hall & Oates are interested in doing things outside of music. I think they've got a TV show, they've got a podcast. In a world where you have Cherry Garcia ice cream, being the branded oat bar of Hall & Oates might, might carry something with it. That's, that's sort of the only way I could see... Hollow Notes is either claiming that there's some some consumer confusion with a potential product that they have or something they're involved in, or they're claiming that it's somehow tarnishing their brand. Um, there, there have been decisions in the past that have said that, uh, especially in California, uh, a celebrity's right to sort of their personality is worth something, and so. If you're going to use something that is definitively a celebrity, you need to compensate them for that. Um, it, it might be that in some courts they decide that by putting Hall & Oates on an oat bar, people assume that Hall & Oates have signed off on it, and they're endorsing this as their oat bar of choice. I don't know if that matches with their brand, but I also don't know what their brand is anymore. So, When you think about the rise or in organic foods over the last 10 to 15 years, and Granola is certainly a part of that. Don't you think at least a little part of this decision on the part of the singing duo is, damn it, we should have thought of this first. We should have gone to some company and made this deal ourselves. I can absolutely see that. <laughs> I just see them as just sort of kicking themselves. I mean, so here's really the question. I mean, sure, Hollow Notes is a great name for an oat bar, but aren't there bands that you associate more with oat bars than Hollow Notes? I mean, don't when you think Opar, don't you think Primus? <laughs> there are definitely plenty of of bands that I think go more towards the granola, granola bar, etc. You could do the uh, the Metallica crushing it oat bar, and it'd be like crushed oats with something nougaty in there. Yeah, you could really, you could make a whole lineup of musician ripoff oat bars. I think that's the move for early bird foods here. I think I think that's what they got to do. They need to go. They need to proactively go to. Metallica, Primus, and others, and just don't, say, "Listen, we'll cut you in." Don't for- even go to them. This is you get all this all this media right now about Hall and Oates. Just keep going down the path, like end up with a whole <laughs> stable of basically trademark infringing musician Oates, and then claim that's your brand. Now, I get that that would be fun for people like you and me, but if you're the lawyer for Early Bird Foods, are you are you telling them that? Absolutely, keep- not as their lawyer, not <laughs> in the slightest. A, a business model based on using trademark infringement to cover your marketing expenses is not a good one. But man, those would be some oat bars we'd order on Amazon until they got shut down. <laughs> we do have some listeners in New York City, so if anyone uh, knows anyone at Early Bird Foods, feel free to point them toward this part, uh, <laughs> toward this episode of Market Foolery. See, that's why he's our lawyer and not anyone else's lawyer. 
Chris Harris, thanks for being here. It's been a pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.